Welcome to Between Lewis and Lovecraft. I'm Hannah. And I'm Tyler. We're here to learn more about the lives of authors that have inspired us, a journey into the stories they not only created, but also lived. So join us as we dive deep into the worlds that live just out of reach. All right, get ready. Get ready. What am I getting ready? The candy. The candy? Right here. Yep, right here. You got no, not not for you, for me. Oh, you want here candy? we go, here we go. Oh, she did it! <laughs> I wish this was a video podcast. Y'all should have seen that. That was my most athletic moment. That was the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. I, I mean, outside of getting married. <laughs> I'm willing to come second to that. Yeah. I literally threw a sour watermelon wedge across the studio and into Tyler's mouth. That was impressive like we're not even at the table like we normally are we are no. across the entire like studio right now yeah we've got kind of a chill vibe going on i like this new studio setup yeah. new kobe o'brien kobe <laughs> bryant did that kobe bryant right why did Neither i add of an us o? sport <laughs> why did i add kobe o'brien michael o jordan <laughs> they're all italian because i'm thinking or shaquille no, o'neal <laughs> oh yeah oh it's just shaquille neal now <laughs> I took his O and gave it to Bryant. <laughs> yeah, we're definitely not yeah. sports people, are this we? This is not a sports podcast. This is a book podcast. This is about nerds writing and talking about nerds. You know who else probably doesn't get a lot of sports references? I'm going to go with uh, our topic for the day. Isaac Asimov. Isaac Asimov. Are you ready to talk your Asimov? You did that. You delivered that a lot better than I did when yeah. I first walked When you in. walked in, that's like what you said. <laughs> I stole Hannah's joke. And made it better. Man, now my mouth is all like, I've got all this extra saliva going on in here because of that sour watermelon That's going to sound great on the recording. Just got to get some of that saliva out of there. Why do we always end up doing like ASMR at the top (laughs) of the show? Because I want to do ASMR, (laughs) Hannah. That is my secret hope that one day our patrons will request an ASMR episode. Oh my God. All two of them. Uh, our hopes for this podcast are completely conflicting, and I don't know how that's going to work out. You don't want to do an ASMR? I don't want to do an now, ASMR. Hold on. I do you do- not want to do an ASMR, or do you not want to listen to the ASMR that we do? Both. Come the on. only thing I want to do is that like trend online where you watch people eat huge amounts of food. I don't. It's called like a mukbang or something. That's the second time I've heard about that in like the last like three days, probably. It's, it's Someone brought up and that coming. up. Yeah. That's the one that I want to do. Apparently, China banned it. Why would you ban that? Because you're not allowed to eat too much there. This is what I heard. I don't have anything <laughs> against. I mean, in the reference to what we're talking about, I don't have anything against China, so I'm not like going after <laughs> them. But yeah, I. It's just mukbang. It's a weird thing that's... Ha- uh, see, I could see banning it because it has a dirty sounding name. <laughs> but yeah, me and my wife the other night. <laughs> we did a mukbang. We mukbanged with each other. <laughs> I mean, that's like every American couple, isn't it? Just yeah, eats copious literally, amounts of Literally, food. my wife and I mukbang every time we watch like Critical Role together or something. Nice. We just order pizza and mukbang. The hell out of the night. I think that needs to be like a pizza delivery company's yeah. slogan, like mukbang the hell out of tonight. Yeah. Netflix and mukbang. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Uh, we almost got on topic there for a second. It was so close. And yeah. Then, then as it a just... mukbang. <laughs> <laughs> I need to get off of this topic. We do real fast. Well, We're talking about Isaac Asimov, who, for those who don't know, is like one of the great science fiction writers of the 20th century. Did you know much about him before we got into this? Almost nothing. I did knew the read, name. Did you read anything by him? I had never read anything okay. by him before prep for this podcast. Had you? Right. I had read Caves of Steel. I had watched the Will Smith movie, I, Robot. Which is nothing like the book. Apparently. I loved the movie, though. <laughs> I thought it was great. I've never seen the movie. Oh, it's really good. I mean, maybe it doesn't hold up, but um, I love it. It's always dangerous going back and watching those movies like 10, 15 years later. Did you ever watch Firefly? Mm-mm. Damn it. Did you ever watch The Knight's Tale? No. Fuck. Uh, Are these based on Asimov works? No, not <laughs> at all. But there's a there's a guy from those movies and TV show. Um, he's been in a lot of stuff. He's honestly been in like a ton of stuff. Um, and he played the voice of um, the robot in it. And uh. like... I thought he did such a good job as a robot. And he's just a phenomenal actor. So nice. I could literally just look it up right now, but You're not gonna. We're not gonna do that. We're talking about Isaac Eismoff, not some random guy robot that voice was in the movie. <laughs> so what was your impression? What did you think going into this that he was gonna be like? Did you have any impression at all? Um, I thought he was gonna have less of a personality, honestly. Yeah. Um, because we Tyler and I both read um, one of Isaac Asimov's memoirs. He has three of them total, I think. But you can't find the other two, apparently. Yeah, they're like That's what he not says. as popular, I guess. I They didn't come they up just in like, my searches. They just went out of print, and nobody nobody kept printing up because he, he nailed it with the third one. Apparently. And everyone's like, we don't need the rest. We got this one. Just burn the, the original copies of them. Never print them again. <laughs> Burn them. <laughs> Burn them. Burn books. That's the uh, the Lewis and Lovecraft way. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Let's make stickers. Burn books. But what's the what's the moral of burning a book that we can get away with making a sticker for that? So we're not just turning into Nazis here. Uh, Isaac Asimov said to do it with his first two memoirs. All right, apparently, there it is. We'll have a picture of Isaac Asimov and then a bunch of burning books and said Asimov says. Get rid of your original I memoirs. Like, I feel like we would get sued by the Asimov uh, estate, estate so fast. Probably. They're probably very litigious, like the Tolkens. Yeah. Or the Seusses. Oh, the Seusses. Don't even get me started. <laughs> <laughs> um, I didn't know anything about him at all. Literally, I knew he wrote sci-fi and robot stuff. I thought he was going to be just like you said, a lot less personality, a lot more passive as a person, you know, and he kind of just wrote his stuff and I mean, I picture not... him being kind of old and stuffy. Yeah. And that's not who he was at all. Mm -mm. Like, sorry, spoiler alert, he was a really interesting guy. Complex, a little con Condescending? Not a little presumptuous? Uh, conceited. Conce he's very con conceited. I don't. I wouldn't say he's very conceited. He's conceited but self-aware about it, he, which yeah, makes exactly. it better. He's self-aware about his con conceit because he knows he's right. <laughs> because he's like, look, I don't just say this because I want to be this way. I say this because it is the fact <laughs> that I do this better than everybody else. And he does. 
I mean, like. So he's totally full of himself, but yeah. in a justified way. And but here's and, here's the interesting thing. It wasn't like he just developed this conceit. Um, after he became famous, he was he, already like he that. had that since he was a child. So let's jump into his life as a child to find out just how conceited he was. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good segue. So Isaac Asimov was born around January second, nineteen twenty, in. Petrovichi, Russia. So there's like some debate over his exact birth date because apparently they didn't keep track that well when he was born. He was born sometime between early October and the first week of January. What the fuck? I'm like, that's how a you, very how wide How do you not range. just make a quick mark on the calendar? Like, did you not know if like Christmas had happened or something? Or were we not celebrating? I mean, was- they were Jewish, so I guess they weren't celebrating Christmas, but... That's true. They didn't celebrate Christmas. They're Russian, so they don't celebrate Thanksgiving. Uh, <laughs> There's got to be too some early marker. for for Halloween. That whole season of the year would have sucked. <laughs> it was just dark all the time. <laughs> um, so he had two younger siblings, a brother and a sister. Um, and his parents, they always spoke English and Yiddish with him, so he never learned Russian. But he was pretty good at picking up languages. Um, so he like said that basically if they would have spoken Russian to him, he would have learned it. Yeah. Like, no problem. He picked up Yiddish just because yeah. they just spoke it around him. And then when he started to learn Hebrew uh, for something else unrelated, he realized he knew a bunch of Hebrew just because of the Yiddish that he already knew. That he already knew. Yeah. So he was an exceptionally bright child early on. Um, he doesn't remember very much about living in Russia because they moved to the United States when he was three. So he basically just grew up in Brooklyn Um, and they kind of made it to the U.S. at a a good time. They didn't leave for any particular reason, like they weren't fleeing persecution or anything. But it's like good that they left when they did because it got a whole lot uh, harder to immigrate to the U.S. when Stalin and Hitler were doing their thing. Yeah. And in in fact, um, you know, he makes a point of talking about how, you know, there were there were Gentiles in that area and there are people who are part of the government and, you know, he's like, yeah, people thought that the government was just like freaking out on people and the cops were going nuts on Jews. And he's like, that's not even the case. One of the Gentile cops that worked in town helped us fill out our paperwork to get, you know, like to move to America. So they weren't dicks about it, <laughs> at least not at that moment. In no, time. they were they were out early enough. Yeah. Um, he spends a lot of time talking about this stuff. Mm-hmm. Like he talks about in a lot of hindsight, cause obviously yeah. he couldn't really remember any of this. This is like from his parents, but like specifically, it sounds like he's had to answer these questions so much and he wants to get in front of it. Like his Jewishness, his Russianness, you know, like <laughs> his intellect, all of these things. I, as I, I was reading this book, it felt like it's like every question that you might have, he's already in the process of answering it. So don't even ask. Yeah. He mentioned that specifically, like with his name being Jewish and like um, people writing to him, demanding that he like be more Jewish in what he's writing about and stuff. Yeah. I love um, the story. Yeah. I, so I don't know if maybe we want to save that for later since sure, it's, it's like later, later in his life. Yeah. But yeah, that's the thing about this memoir of his. It jumps all over the place chronologically. Yeah. So forgive us for any... um like weird Jump. timeline things. Yeah, if you guys thought I already jump around <laughs> like crazy, you should read this memoir because uh, he does it a lot. He does it all the time. He's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take that ADD doof bag Tyler and make him feel really bad about talking about this because it is not going to be in chronological order at all. Not even close. Um. So his dad had been 
highly educated as an Orthodox Jew um, and was really successful in Russia. Yeah. But none of that translated to the United States. So yeah. when they got there, they kind of had a tough time at first. Um, his dad took on like odd sales jobs when they were available. Um, and eventually he saved up enough that he could buy a candy store where everyone in the family had to work. Um, and that's going to be a big influence throughout um, Isaac Asimov's life because Basically, every moment that he wasn't in school, he was working at this candy shop. It is a it's a huge backdrop to the stability of his childhood mm-hmm. and, and early, you know, adulthood. Even um, it's it's the place where it was constant for him. There mm-hmm. was that consistency. Um, he has some bad memories of not being able to go out, but he preferred not to go out. You know, like he liked staying in and reading and stuff, but. Um, it really was when the uh, the candy store took him away from reading books that he started to dislike it. <laughs> to like he couldn't it. care less about not being able to go and hang out with friends and shit. It was like, hey, son, stop reading for two seconds and take care of the store. And it would be like pulling me away from video games. <laughs> yeah. And then the other thing that um, I think is important to note about his early life is that even though his dad was an Orthodox Jew... Um, he only occasionally took Isaac to synagogue, um, like for the special occasions. Or yeah. there was one point I think where was it his dad or his mom who like worked at the synagogue for a second? I think it was I his, dad. It was his dad. Yeah, yeah. I, I so, think he was doing some clerical stuff. There. Yeah, he his dad worked there for a little bit. So then he took the kids to synagogue because you know it was kind of He's expected. There, yeah. Um, but they really didn't keep up their religion after moving to the United States. So like this is another thing that comes into play later on. Is like yeah, he's Jewish, but he's not like religious. Yeah. Um, and and he attests that to the fact that it was so stringent and, you know, so much a part of his father's life when his father was younger and growing up. And um, when he, they came to America, it didn't it didn't have to be. And so they took that opportunity to kind of break out and have their own freedom of of setting their own priorities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what I think he, he really attested to to that. Yeah, like it it wasn't a priority for his dad. Like it was something that had just been expected of him yeah. previously. Um, so yeah, so um, early on especially, uh, Asimov was a, a excellent student um, in like grade school and stuff. He ended up skipping several grades um, and was the, the top of his class easily until about high school time. Every single student or person that I've ever seen who skipped grades talks about how hard it was for them to be the smallest kid in class and moving up to stuff. If you, I was thinking about this while I was listening to his book. If you had a kid who was especially bright and could move up from fucking elementary school, skip middle school and go into high school, would you do that? Well, he skipped like two or three more grades than I did, but I skipped a grade. Did You skipped yeah. a grade. A grade. That's different, though. Yeah. Is, I mean, maybe not. Well, maybe you had an experience like him. I just, <laughs> in my mind, going from elementary to high school is a big jump. Yeah, he went from like eighth grade to 10th grade or something, or like sixth grade to 10th grade yeah. or something like that. Uh, yeah, that would be a lot more significant than me going from kindergarten to second grade. Right. Like, that's not that much. Although, I mean, it was hard. Like, none of the second graders wanted to talk to me the first year. They were like, what's this weird first grader doing in our class? Yeah. But I think it would be a lot harder for boys because he notes several times, like, how much smaller he was than everyone else, whereas yeah. I was just, like, tall already. So it didn't matter. <laughs> so, yeah, it was whatever. <laughs> and And by the next year, everybody probably forgot that you weren't actually a, supposed yeah. to be part of it because it's like, 
whatever at Kids third, forget. first, second, third grade. Who the fuck cares? But know? I think like a a kid going to high school is a lot bigger jump. Yeah. And then like going going on to college when you're like when 15 you're 16, 15, or 16, yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think I'd be more concerned about that now than back then just because oh, really? of like party culture type stuff. Mm. It's like who wants to send their I 15 year old daughter to college? I think there's a lot more of an institution for for children who skip those classes and, and grades. Uh, I think it it's a it's a lot less like all right you're 15 here's here pack it up see you later you're going to college it's more like okay you're still gonna be treated you're like you're in high school but you're just taking these classes yeah. somewhere else and and so i i don't think that it's necessarily like a just hand over your kid <laughs> to the college and let them party it up at 15 years old yeah maybe they're not moving into the dorms but yeah i i'm sure that was pretty influential i mean we know that it it was in several of his high school classes but before we get that far um he started writing fiction in 1931 so at the age of 11 um and one of the things that he did was he kind of copied the style of dime novels that he saw um in the candy store because the candy store also had like magazines and and books and stuff for sale on the the little racks too um, and the dime novels were kind of like series books with new volumes constantly being churned out. So think like Nancy Drew or um, the Bobsy Twins, stuff like that. Uh, he called his version the Greenville Chums in College. And it was pretty much a direct imitation of a series he liked about the Rover Boys. Uh, he made it about eight chapters in and then quit. Um, and then he kind of would like repeat this pattern throughout his childhood, kind of making up the stories um, as he went along. And he said that experience was like being a reader because he was like writing the story, but he didn't know where it was going. So yeah. it was very exciting to him. But the problem with that is then the story just kind of meandered and never like reached any conclusion. Right. Um, and so one of his like main pieces of advice for beginners was kind of based on that um, background. And it's um, know your ending or the river of your story may finally sink into the desert sands and never reach the sea, which sounds very pretentious. I think it's a little wordy for my liking, but uh, I think it's important too. know where you're going. I used to do that too as a kid. I'd be like, oh, I'm just going to write. I have no idea where this story is going. I'll make it up as I go along and it doesn't work out. I recently was digging through my memories of, of writing. Um, and cause I've been looking at writing more short stories, especially having read Asimov and all these people that we've studied who they write short stories and that's how they, you know, like kind of cut their teeth on story, right. On storytelling. And I'm like, man, maybe that's, that's what I'm missing is I just, I jumped from not writing to I'm a write novels. Right. And I'm like, maybe that's the problem. So I'm going through my list of stories that I have in my head which you know is a lot substantial. Uh, and I'm like, okay, maybe I can adjust these to make them short stories and, and kind of do more of some anthology stuff, you know, and, and that sort of thing. That's, that seems like fun. I think it'd be really fun to do that. Um, and so then I'm starting to go back in time in my head of like stories that I never really thought were worth pursuing because a novel wouldn't make sense, but maybe I can do it as a short. And I went all the way back to my first story that I ever put down on paper and it was called The Bracelet Bearer. And I want you to imagine 13-year-old Tyler who had just read um, a book called This Present Darkness by Frank Peretti. And it's about angels and demons fighting for, you know, the souls of humanity as a backdrop to, 
you know, the small town politics and journalists investigating the corrupt nature of a cult that's trying to take over the town. That sounds pretty heavy for a 13-year-old. 13-year-old, yeah. I mean, trust me, this present darkness, piercing the darkness, prophet, dead air was fucked up, and abaddon. Those are the... Those are the books that I read at 13 years old in eighth grade. And I also watched Lord of the Rings. Well, I watched that when I was like 11 or 12, right. too. So put those two things together and you got the bracelet bearer. Yikes. It's about a kid. Oh, the ring bear. Oh, my God. It's about a kid <laughs> who puts on a magical bracelet and gets teleported to the to the spiritual realm. And and then he, he meets his guardian angel and they're going to fight demons together. And Creed was going to do the soundtrack, just so you're aware. <laughs> <laughs> Look <Perfect>. at me! <laughs> I think that's way more mature and like well thought out thematically than whatever I was working on at 13. Sure. So now I've started looking at that story and I'm like, man, I could do that. But now I want to put the twist just in my in my who I am as a writer now that the twist is... Um, that his guardian angel does not like him. That's a good twist. Like, like is like actively annoyed that he has to protect this child from death, <laughs> and is like, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of. I think I'm gonna try and work. I think that might be one of my first short stories that I'm gonna <laughs> try and publish. So, so you're taking a different approach to it because Asimov realized that the Greenville Chums in college was trash was and never finished shitty. it. <laughs> Yeah, he didn't have the imagination but you to do. take the cliche thing that you are obviously ripping off and then twist it into something that's completely different. Well, he was 11, you know. He'll work on that. 11-year-old <laughs> Asimov can suck it. <laughs> I'm sure it was still better than whatever I was doing at, like, age 20. So yeah. uh, well, I'm going to sure. go cry now. <laughs> um, so his interest in science fiction started when he saw some of the sci-fi magazines for sale on the newsstand, again, at the candy store, because this is where he lives and slaves away day after day for his parents um his dad at first wouldn't let him read them um but when science wonder stories was the name of one magazine popped up on the stands he convinced his dad it was a serious journal of science yeah and tricked him into letting him read it yeah uh, and so then he like fell in love with the genre he started writing letters to the editors pretty early on commenting on stories and even writing some of his own which he didn't submit that early on sure but he was like really into it yeah um and then around this time, this is when he uh, enters high school in 1932, so at 12, mm -hmm. 12 years old in high school, and joins the 10th grade. So 10th graders are normally 16, right? I think. 14, 15, 15, 16. Yeah. Yeah, 15, yeah. 16. So he's like younger than them by three or four years. Um, and not surprisingly, probably, he found that the other students were better than him at math, science, or sometimes all of the subjects, which was a huge shock to him. Well, it wasn't necessarily that they were better at him at these ones. It's that they were they there were kids that he, he realized that he was generally smart about everything, but he was not specifically smart about anything. Yeah. And that these kids, were, where one of them might not be good at history was really good at math mm -hmm. and where one might not be good at math was really good at writing or you know social studies he wasn't the best at anything he was not the best at anything and and he it really messed with him because he's like i don't understand how they can be bad at one thing but better than me at something else and how am i getting not a's in this class anymore <laughs> you know it's what happens when you skip four fucking grades dude <laughs> 
Well, 12 year olds don't normally have that kind of perspective and insight. Yeah, I guess. Um, and then two years later, so I guess his senior year, um, one of the English teachers who was also the advisor for the school's literary magazine gave a special writing course that was basically oh so he could collect more stories for yeah. the magazine. Um, and Asimov was like, I'm a writer. I'm going to join. He was 14 at that time and everyone else was like 16 or 17. Um, and he, looking back, describes his writing as being absolutely and terminally rotten, which yeah. I don't know if it, I doubt it was at the time. It was probably good for a high schooler. I look back at my work from not even 10 years ago and I'm like, it, yeah. was, it was terrible. I look back at my work from two years ago. I'm like, this is shit. Ah, your stuff <laughs> from two years ago is great. Oh, thank you. You're too kind. But it's it's absolutely and terminally rotten to use uh, <laughs> Asimov's words. Yeah. Um. So in this class, he was his um, teacher was reading one of his essays and, or no, he was reading one of his essays out loud and the teacher stopped him partway through and described his story as he said like a barnyard euphemism. I assume shit. that means shit. 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 Could I you imagine being 14 years old and for the first time ever you are reading your work in front of people and they say this is shit. The teacher stops and says the teacher shit in the 1930s. <laughs> that I mean, if a public school teacher did that today, they'd get fired. Right. In the 30s, they'd be like. Dude, what the fuck? <laughs> you don't say those words. And so then, of course, the whole class laughed at him, and he was humiliated, as anyone <clears throat> would be. I just imagine the beginning scene of of um, Claudio, the Chance of Meatballs, Flint Lockwood, is running through the streets crying. Oh, my gosh. It's the best. Sad Asimov. <laughs> yeah, sad Asimov. I don't understand your fishing metaphors. So he didn't, he didn't let it, like, stop him from writing. He kept trying, and at the end of the term... The students were all asked to write something specifically for the literary magazine. So he he gives it another try and he writes an essay called Little Brothers, which is basically about the new baby being brought home a few years previously. Um, And he gave it like a humorous tone. um, And the teacher actually accepted it for the magazine. And in hindsight, um, Asimov is like, because they needed something lighthearted because all of the other students' stories were depressing as shit because... Um, you know, a few years previously, the country had gone through the Great Depression. So all yeah. of these students were cynical as fuck, apparently. Yeah. It w- they're all just turning into some, you know, like some, some Steinbeck stuff. Yeah, I was going to say yeah. Steinbeck. They got, they got fucking, what's his name, walking through town, just beating up hookers and shit. <laughs> There's like a whole <laughs> chapter about a turtle that gets stuck on its back. Yeah. Or whatever. Did you read The Grapes of Wrath? No, I oh didn't. Oh my God. It's, I hated that I, book so much. It's dumb. I don't want to read those. I can't. I, I'm so not looking forward to when we actually get around to Steinbeck because we have to. I at don't some like Steinbeck. I mean, spoiler alert, but I don't like Steinbeck. <laughs> yeah, we're going to find that out at some point. Yeah. So- we're going to have an entire, like, we're going to do, like, a whole section of our show where we where we get over all of the the authors <laughs> we just don't want to talk about. We just about. rip on everybody. Yeah. We'll bring Mr. James back We're for a be special. Very appearance. drunk the whole time. <laughs> That'll be great. It'll probably be our most popular episode. Probably. So yeah, so he submits this funny story about little brothers, and everybody else is the new Steinbeck. Yeah. Um, and the teacher includes it, and then I guess basically includes like a preface to it that says, "Sorry for including this." Yeah. In the literary when he, magazine. When he reprinted it, he had it. He added a a little forward into it, being like, "Hey." I just needed something funny in there because everyone else is depressing. Which, so. like, Asimov Sorry. is so excited that his thing made the, the journal. And then the teacher includes this dickish note. Again, could you imagine no. being a child 
And first somebody's like, your writing is shit. Literal shit. And then he's like, you know what? Let's just put something else in. And then you're like, great. Finally, this guy likes me. I'm going to start writing more. And then you read it and he's like, just so everyone's aware, this is shit. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's so mean. It's something out of a movie. It's something out of like some like Devil Wears Prada twist ending bullshit. Yep. So he, um, you know, for good reason, held a grudge against this teacher his entire life. And I think he said something about <laughs> how he was like reason. sad that um, the the teacher like died before he got super successful or something because he wanted to like throw it in his face. Asimov is a vengeful bitch. Vengeful I, bitch. I respect that because I would be too. I don't like people who like pretend to let it go. And I'm like, yeah. you're really harboring a grudge. And he does. He gets into that later. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I mean, that's his like high school writing experience. His 12-year-old high school. His 12-year-old high school writing experience. Um. And of course, in this time, he was also like reading voraciously. Uh, he read everything he said except modern fiction. So... Uh, I guess, like, contemporary fiction as we would describe it now. Sure. And he said that preference remained, like, throughout his life. Um, Modern or contemporary? Like, contemporary fiction. So, like, he was not reading, like, the stuff that was coming out in the 1930s or something. He was reading um, contemporary nonfiction. He loved nonfiction. Sure. Um, But everything else, he was, like, reading older books, I guess. Right. Yeah, Uh, he loved um, Dickens. mm Mm-hmm. Who doesn't? (laughs) His wife. Actually, his wife loved Dickens. The problem is he didn't love her back. <laughs> Listen to our Dickens episode. We talk about it. So sad. R.I.P. <laughs> Catherine. Her name was Catherine, right? I don't know. Probably. <laughs> um. So then after high school, um, he started at Seth Lowe Junior College, which was like an undergrad college for Columbia. He'd originally tried for Columbia College, but I guess at this time, uh, not surprisingly again, Colleges were super racist. And super racist. Their quota for Jews had already been filled. So nah, we're good. We've got enough we, Asians and Jews. We don't need any more. No more, guys. No way. That still happens today? There was a whole lawsuit about this. I know. I don't think it went well for, I, uh, you for know, Harvard? justice. Or wherever No, I feel like the judge ruled in favor of Harvard, but really? I may be wrong. I got to go back and look. Between Lewis and Lovecraft, a local... Uh, uh, politics show now apparently because i just i'm so angry about it. let's just take this 1930s lesson and say that quotas might not be good they're terrible are you kidding me you can't you can't just uh, you can't this is what i'm gonna get upset about it's not gonna be his (laughs) marriage it's not gonna be gertrude it's gonna be the fact that it seriously bugs the shit out. I was listening to it, and I just it fucking pisses me off. This dude is one of the smartest people in the world. He he grows up to become the greatest sci-fi writers of all time, and he's not allowed to go to the college that he should go to, that he's chosen to go to, because they got enough Jews. That's bullshit. Like, I just, I just, I know. It was a different time. It was a different period. And I'm looking at it the 2021 vision, but it still pisses me off. I ended up liking this guy, and it pisses me off. I don't know. We're going to get more pissed off in a, in a couple years. I so know. I know. So before he started at Seth Lowe, he had originally tried for, or he originally went to City College because it was cheaper. Like, he couldn't afford Seth Lowe. It's so funny to me, though, because that's what 
that's the rival name of the college and community. Oh, really? Yeah. So he went to the rival college and, and community. He went to city college. <laughs> um, so he, he described it as spending three miserable days at city college. Yeah, um, three days. That's and all he remembers is getting a physical examination where everyone else's card got stamped WD for well-developed and his got stamped PD for poorly developed. <laughs> poorly developed. And like he is three to four years younger yeah, than everybody else. <laughs> So he's like super butthurt about this. Um, and it's like, this is so unfair. Oh, um, man. And then coincidental timing, he gets a le- letter from Seth Lowe asking where he was. They were like, dude, why didn't you show up for school? And his dad called the college and said they couldn't afford the tuition. So they offered a scholarship and he transferred. Later, City College reached back out because apparently they'd seen the results of a test they gave all of the incoming students. And his, it's like an intelligence test. And he scored off the charts. So they were like, oh, now we really want you. And he's like, nope, too late. Yeah. Poorly developed my ass. You guys touched me in the butt and said it wasn't good enough. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what kind of physical it was. I hope it wasn't that. That's not, that's not how your physicals get. (laughs) You might want to transfer to a different doctor. Yeah, I'm going to city college now. That's not how they do it. (laughs) Um, Seth Lowe still wasn't a great school. Uh, he said it was literally a ghetto school, and it was about half Jewish and half Italian American because Italian Americans weren't chill back right, then either. Right, because it's where they, it's where Columbia would take the people that they didn't think were respectable enough. Yeah, but were smart enough to get into Columbia. It's and the they're outcast like, school. Yeah, they're like, nah, go down the road. We yeah. don't, we don't want to, we don't want to smell your stink. You guys are smart, <laughs> but you stink. Like, no, we don't. We're normal human beings. Nah, you're Italian. You're and Italian Jewish. And Jewish. Get over there. So I'm a, I'm a freak out here. So this college gets shut down one year in. So he gets transferred to the main campus. Um, and at this time, he also switches majors from biology to chemistry. And why he switched is like so interesting to me. Um, because I guess with for the biology major, the students had to dissect animals. Yep. And at first he like swallowed the, the issue with it. He was like, okay, like they're already dead. It's fine. Yep. But then... They were told to find a stray cat and kill it by dumping it into a vat of chloroform. And he did it, but he never, like, got over the trauma of it. Yep. So he uh, he was okay it's at chemistry, up. so he switched to that major. It's That's fucked so up. bad. I mean, he says in there a little bit, he's like, you know, I know, like, dissecting animals is important for science and all of that. I just can't do it. <laughs> yeah, except for the part where you're murdering cats. Well, how do you think they get the other animals? I don't I don't know. You just don't have to see it. I don't it. care. They they I don't don't murder cats. Why do you got to murder the cats? How though? are you going to dissect them then? Alive? You wait till they die. Die not okay. Naturally. Na- or put down when the when they bring them into the vet. <laughs> You're so kind to animals. Stop murdering cats and Don't. stop segregating people's education. That's the moral of this episode. Yeah, that's what we're going to entitle. That's and then and the sticker will have burning books and that's what it will say. <laughs> <laughs> Just really confuse the people. Everyone's going to be like, "What the fuck is happening on this sticker?" <laughs> <laughs> So the cat incident makes him change majors to chemistry, uh, which he said he was like okay at on the like math and formulaic side, but hopeless in the laboratory. I guess his experiments like were always going wrong. He was always breaking shit. 
In chemistry? In chemistry. Well, that's funny because he specifically didn't take physics because he's bad at math. But somehow it worked out. I don't know. He's I, like, I, I hit my threshold with math. And like, I could do this specific math and nothing higher. Maybe chemistry math is easier than physics math. I I, I found physics I very difficult. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's why it's like Einstein and, yeah. you know. Hawking Asimov was no Einstein. Asimov was no Hawking, I'll tell you that. <laughs> um, somehow, though, uh, his like not being as good as some of the best chemistry students didn't like shake his self perception of him as being like an exceptional person. Like throughout all of this, he is maintaining his inner like confidence. Yeah, because it's not it's not the uh, what he knows he is really good at is recall. His memory recall um, is his ability to take in information and hold it and be able to recall that information. Uh, he goes on this rant about like, I don't have eidetic. I don't have photo- you know, photographic memory. I just, I'm able to recall these things mm-hmm. that nobody else seems to be able to do. And, um, and so, you know, he, that took him pretty far in specific fields but for some reason it didn't apply to other other places i think it was a matter of like things he cared about if he wasn't interested in something it didn't work yeah um i can see that so yeah now we get to the part where we get mad again so (laughs) even though he was attending the same classes on the same campus and taking the same tests as all the other students he receives a Bachelor of Science, which I guess is a less prestigious so, so degree. So he, he, there's a reason, though. Like, the school got shut down or something. Well, yeah. he So Seth Lowe got shut down, and then he moved to and the then he real moved campus. To Colum- yeah, Columbia. So he's in class, in all of the same classes with the Columbia students. Yes. But at the end, he gets a Bachelor of Science instead of the Bachelor of Arts that the real students got. Yes. Which is it's just bullshit. like so, so much bullshit. It's bullshit. He got that because he's a Jew. Like that's. Tyler is about ready to throw his drink. I don't know. Fuck you, Columbia. I've been, I've been, I've been dealing with stuff for the past year and a half with, you know, racism and equality and all of that, and like, and I don't. It just it it. I'm listening to this book and it's it's driving me nuts. Because he's, I don't know if it's if it's because he's older when he's writing this, and so he he writes it passively. He's like, "Yeah, this happened," and well, I'm like, he, "He notes that he was like mad about it when he found out." Yeah, but where is it in his writing? Where is where <laughs> is this him calling these people out in his work, in in anti segregation, in in saying it's not fair, it's unjust to have these systems in place? He doesn't. Like he, it's like he doesn't care. It's like, look, I, I got what I needed out of it, so it doesn't matter. But it's like for millions of people, it does matter, and you were a voice. And now I'm attacking him for not doing enough, but I don't know. It's just it's annoying because I want there to be more for him <laughs> and for other people because he's not the only person. It's not like he's just like one person that this happened to. He This happened to hundreds of people that – that wanted to be better and and had the qualities that to prove themselves better but they were kept down because the system just didn't just didn't care about them. Mm-hmm. 
And we're still seeing shit like that today. And that's what I think drives me insane. Well, I think part of the perspective that he has, and he like mentions this early on too, is that like looking back, he's like, you know what? Yeah, it kind of sucked being Jewish in the 1930s, but not as bad as it was for black people. Yeah. So that was like his main perspective. He's like, you know, African-Americans have had a much worse go of it in the U.S. than I have. Yeah. And that's like his, his perspective for it, I guess. And then I think also some of it comes from like, he probably got really annoyed at asking to be a voice for Jews later on. And, and that probably colors that a little bit yes. too. And I'm not even asking him to be a voice for Jews, but instead asking him to be a voice against hypocrisy <laughs> and systematic oppression. Is that too much to ask Is Asimov? Too, it's not too much to ask when you're making millions of dollars writing stories every year. You're, you're writing 13 stories every year and you can't touch on this subject once. Deep thank breath. you yep thank you all right so while he is in this racist college <laughs> he is still writing um, <laughs> he started writing a story called cosmic corkscrew in 1937 so at age 17 um he was also still writing letters to the editors of astounding magazine every month um which was a big one back then that I think, like, we've mentioned some of these magazines before as, like, ones that I think Frank Herbert and, and other guys were, Frank like, Herbert, submitting stuff Lovecraft, to. Lovecraft, yeah. Yeah, so a lot of these magazines are, like, institutional back in the early 1900s. Yeah. Um. So the thing about writing letters to the editors back then was that names and addresses were printed alongside your your letter, which seems, like, super sketchy That's today. That's super like, sketch. Don't do that. Um, <laughs> Every yeah. time you write a paper or a, a story, you're doxing yourself. Yeah, every time you comment on Facebook, maybe then people would be nicer. But yeah, maybe so, that's what we need to do. Because names and addresses <laughs> were there, fans could kind of contact one another, and if they lived in the same area, they could meet and discuss stories, like share magazines, stuff like that. And this is how fan clubs kind of developed out of these magazines that they all loved. Um, so a former classmate of Asimov's from high school noticed his name on the letters and sent him a card in 1938, so he would have been 18 then, inviting him to attend meetings of the Queen's Science Fiction Club. Um, and at this point, like, even though he's technically an adult, Asimov is still, like, super intertwined with his family. He's still working at the candy shop all the time, so he had to negotiate with his parents to, A, get time off from the candy shop, and B get money to like take a cab to the meeting because even though he worked at the candy store he wasn't like getting a paycheck it was just like he was working at the store to help his parents keep the store alive yeah so it's not like he had spare money so eventually like they gave in uh he worked it out and in september of 1938 he he goes to this club and meets other science fiction fans in person for the first time ever um by the time he attended, I thought this was kind of funny. The main group had actually split into two contentious yeah. factions, which he said that's a theme throughout science fiction clubs is that they like they're very dramatic and fight a lot. Right. Um, apparently very passionate people. Uh, passionate, conceited. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, full of ideas. I think in the few times I've talked to hardcore science fiction fans, there's a lot of um, hard headedness. Ego. Ego, that's a word for it. Yeah. Like, they're, I mean, just ask someone, like, whether they like Star Wars or Star Trek, I guess, and you'll get some of that vibe. It's like, people are very, um, it's not whether about you their like thing. it. I Which like one both. is better? Which one's better? Yes, that's the phrase. Which one's better, use. Hannah? I don't care about either of them. Which one's better, though? I don't care. Hannah. I don't, I don't care. Say it on the air. I am, so, I've, I've never even seen Star Trek. 
There, I said it on the air. Uh, Is Cam's voice on here? No, it's not recording, Cameron. <laughs> it's just Cameron's voice in our heads being nerdy and... <laughs> He like he likes to do that. Well, yes and no. And really freak us out. Yeah. So, by the time that he joins the Queen Science Fiction Club, the main group had split into two separate groups. The smaller group, which is a friend from high school had joined, were activists who felt like science fiction needed to be more anti-fascist. Yes. And take a stand. No and the way. The other group was like, "Nah, sci-fi is above politics." But then Asimov ultimately agrees with it should be anti-fascist yes. and take more of a stand. But he and just yet, happened to join his friends group. And yet, what's the stand he took? What's the stand he took? I see your point. Asimov's still like, I kind of like him. So No, I get it. He, he ultimately joined it because his friend was in it. And then he realized that he, he agreed, agreed with them. With them after the fact. Yeah. Yeah. So the new group went by the the Futurians? Is that how you say Futurians. Futurians. Which I'm pretty sure is the name of something in Futurama. They probably stole it. Probably. <laughs> well, yeah. Asimov they definitely, definitely stole, stole it. it from the 1999 cartoon. <laughs> well, I don't doubt that he could time travel. True. Um. So in Asimov's words, it basically consisted of a group of brilliant teenagers who, as nearly as I could tell, all came from broken homes and had led miserable or, at the very least, insecure childhoods. Yep. Ouch. Um, I mean, we're, we're seeing common threads between people who share a common interest. It, except it that sense. he did not share that common background. He didn't background. feel like he did. He felt like an outsider because he had a close family and a happy childhood. But in all the other ways, he felt he had found a, quote, spiritual home. Um, and it was, like, the first time he had real friends. So looking back on his life, like, no one he went to high school or college with, like, stayed in his life after that. Which makes sense since they're all four years older than Yeah. Him. Yeah. And probably, I mean, had very different upbringings, too. And this is the beginning of, of what we see. <clears throat> you know, I was expecting Asimov to be a conceited douchebag old man the whole time we were reading about him. But this is where you start to see that Asimov cherishes friendship. Mm-hmm. And like, like the anti-Hemingway, right? Like Hemingway had Hemingway friends. Hemingway was a douche to his friends. And he hated his friends. Poor and he F. treated Scott them Fitzgerald. so shittily. Everybody around him, he was so toxic to. Asimov was the complete opposite. He loved everybody. And he wanted to get along with them. And he, and he laughed with them. And it'd get him in trouble sometimes where he'd be joking around with his friends People will be like, hey, be more serious. And he's like, ah, all right, whatever. And then they just <laughs> joke around. And all of his friends are drunk. He doesn't drink, but he's still palling around with them. And he doesn't need to drink. He's such a goofball that he gets along with them. Like, it was so weird to hear, to, like, realize that this guy, I, I know I say this about a lot of authors and myself, but I feel like that's good. That could be me with other <laughs> authors. It's like, I just want to be friends with you. Well, I mean, because he describes himself so many times as being like socially awkward, I wouldn't have expected him to like have a solid friend group. But it makes sense in this context because they bonded over that shared interest, kind of like um, Lewis and Tolkien. Like, yeah. I mean, they loved sci fi. So these guys 
had an. That's what they spoke yeah. about. That's, they learned to to love each other because of these common interests and despite their differences. If anything, because of their differences, because it it grows you together when you find another person. Let me say it this way. When you have another man in your life, I don't know how it is for women, but when men argue, there is a defining line where your arguments turn you into like people you don't want to be around. And then there's arguments with people where you realize you are the best, you are best friends Mm -hmm. because you're arguing. And that has happened to me so many times. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's clear in the Inklings and clear in the Futurians too. The Futurians. The future. It sounds like, um. Like a, a race of like space fighters or That's something. That's what I'm saying. I think I'm pretty sure it's from Futurama. <laughs> so I mean, in this environment, uh, he he kind of kicks his writing into high gear too. He finishes um, the story that he's been working on, and his dad is actually the one who suggests that he submit it to Astounding Science Fiction, uh, which is edited by John W. Campbell, which is a name we've definitely mentioned on this podcast before. Uh, yeah. As an editor of that magazine. Uh, and Campbell would go on to influence the work of, of some of the most famous sci-fi authors like Arthur C. Clarke, Paul Anderson, uh, L. Sprague de Camp, and more. Um, and ma- this was so funny to me. So mailing the the story would have cost too much. So he took the cheaper option, which was to like take the subway to the office and drop it off by hand. Yeah. So Asimov thought he would probably leave the story with a secretary. But apparently Campbell liked to invite young writers into his office to talk about their work with him. Like he was super invested. In, and in, by talking about with it, preach at. Preach at. <laughs> that's what he would do. But I mean, that's still like pretty cool. It oh, shows yeah. that you're invested in bringing up new talent. He just needed someone to talk to. Or that. Yeah, he was just a lonely <laughs> man. <laughs> so Asimov shows up with his story, and instead of leaving it with the secretary, gets taken to the editor's office and talked with Campbell for more than an hour, or got talked at. He said talked with him. Yeah. Um, and then two days later, Campbell sent his story back to him. He rejected it, but he offered um, suggestions for improvement and encouraged him to keep trying. And this pattern would continue on a monthly basis. Like Asimov would write a story every month, send it to Campbell, who would send it back with helpful notes. Um, and he just, like, really nurtured Asimov through his beginnings as a sci-fi writer. Um, and then finally... That's what scares me, by the way. That you as don't a have writer, a gamble? Yeah, that, that, that I... Like, I'm 32 years old, and I'm just now starting to write shorts. And I'm like, I feel like I know how to write. <laughs> and I'm going to send this off, and they're going to be like, no, nah, this is bad. This is bad. This is real bad. And it's like, I just need people to... to that's why I appreciate having you... Because you will tell me, like, oh, this is pretty bad. You yeah, but I'm no uh, John Campbell. You're no John Campbell. Hannah Ray Lambert, the next John Campbell. I have a better name than John Campbell, I think. I I think both names are pretty good. You like them both? So, four months after his first visit to Campbell, he manages to sell, sell a story, but not to Campbell. Um, he gets it published in Amazing Stories, a different magazine, and got paid $64 for, for it. It was called Marooned Off Vesta. Um, and it came out in January of 1939, a week after his 19th birthday. Fuck this guy. <laughs> How can he be so mad at Kazuo Ishiguro, who got published like way, way later, like into his 20s, yet Asimov is getting published at 19 and you're totally chill with it? Because Asimov did the work. Asimov submitted denied submitted denied he got critiqued he worked he did better over four months okay but he's also a genius 
And he's also been a part of a community of writers. He's been digesting their their ideas and how they do things. He has been in the community for at least three years, right? <laughs> fucking motherfucking douchebag. Child prodigy. What's his name? What's her oh. name's husband? Oh, <laughs> oh goes God. to a cabin for thirty days. You forgot your fate, Lorna McDougal. Lorna McDougal's husband. <laughs> Goes to a cabin for 30 days, comes out, becomes a bestseller. Bullshit. Back to Asimov. Um, so Amazing Stories published a second story of his in May, and it wasn't until his third story that he actually got one sold to John Campbell, and that came out in July of 1939. So I think it, I think it is cool, though, that John Campbell didn't just immediately like, oh, you sold something? Okay, let me also buy something. Yeah. No, like, I, he still I made him work for it. He did make him work for it. Um, and Asimov, looking back, actually thinks it, it was a good thing that his stories were published in Amazing First because that is, in his opinion, the only reason he went on to write under his own name because apparently John Campbell was super into having simple names as pseudonyms. So Asimov predicts he would have asked him to submit under a boring name like John Smith or something, but the amazing editor didn't care. And since those stories came out first, like it was already sealed. Like he was Isaac Asimov. Do you want to talk about the name thing at this point? Oh, we can. Yeah. Yeah. So Isaac Asimov is a super Jewish name. Yeah. And it's a big deal. Like he specifically is like, I love my name. Yeah. Which again, I mean, he's conceited, but also like, (laughs) I like my name. Tyler Clausen, I think it's a cool name. Tyler Wayne Clausen, it's a cool name. I hate my name, but it's too late to change you it. You hate Hannah Ray Lambert? Yes. That's a cool-ass name, though. I don't like it. Ugh. I hate Hannah. If What? It's a palindrome. I know, but it's it was the eighth most common name the year I was born. That's why I hate it, because there's so many out there. Man, I think Hannah's a cool name. Uh I think Isaac Asimov is a cool name. Obviously, like now it's embedded into us to be a, a specific name, though. And Asimov knew he wanted to see his name on a book. He yes. wanted to see his name on the cover, and that's what he said when he first wrote his uh, when he first got his book published or story published. He said it was great to see my story in there, but my real goal was to have my name on the cover yes and and he has always been obsessed with like i love my name i'm never changing my name and even before writing when you come to america as as a jewish russian it was very common to change your name to something very american and un-jewish right and and so this was something that he had to deal with constantly and it goes throughout his life and this is what we were touching on earlier people would call him and say you need to be more of a Jewish, you know, like example to people. You need to be a better example to the young Jewish people in, in America. Yeah, they were like mad that he was doing things on on, on the, the Sabbath. Day of rest. Yeah. Uh, and he's like, well, I'm not religious. And they're like, still, you need to set an example. But you're Jewish and you need to set an example for young Jewish people. Yeah. And I love what he does when the one dude is like, you know, is like, he's like, what's your, what's your name, sir? And the, and the guy is like, oh, it's, you know, John Rickman or something like that. <laughs> And he's like, yeah, a very Jewish sounding name. And like <laughs> that right there, there's so much layered in there. It's not just he's like, that's a dumb name. But like you went out of your way to change your name from something Jewish. We both know it. I don't have evidence, but we both know you did. Or if you didn't, your parents did. Or your parents did. I'm still Isaac Asimov. So how are you a good example to Jewish people if you're 
if you can't even have your own Jewish name, you know? And like, I love that. I absolutely love the calling out hypocrisy and, and shit like that because he doesn't, he doesn't write to, to instill any specific ideal or any specific, um, standard for anything. And that's, I mean, obviously I've, I've been getting on to him about, like, I think he should have been doing more and in a specific area, but he decides what he wants to write, and and it's not up to other people to choose what he wants to write about. Yeah, he's like, why should I be expected to write about Jewish themes when I'm I'm not Jewish by religion? And also, like, you don't expect every Christian to write books about Christian themes. Like, they're allowed to write whatever they want. Wow. And I think that's something that we still see today. Like a lot of a lot of times, people are pressured to write about their specific experience. Yeah. And I think some writers have pushed back on that. They're like, you know what? Maybe I just want to tell a different kind of story. Like, stop trying to pigeonhole me. The, I just did uh, the correspondence with Scott Miner from mm -hmm. uh, the Realm Makers crew, and that's exactly what they are doing. They are like, we are four Christian authors who are writing books that are not, and I'm using air quotes, not Christian books. They are stories. Mm -hmm. You know, like first and foremost, they are stories, and and they they are just telling good stories and uh and because of that there's a story out there about you know amish vampires in space see we and need I, those and stories. i want to read that so bad we need those stories maybe i'll talk to the author and see if we can do like a an audiobook collaboration Ooh. patrons can get the audiobook of, of amish vampires in space yeah that's just so many genres there um so yeah so his name was very important to him I think very. I think that's the end of that discussion. Yeah, good with that. Okay, so <laughs> like I, I just want to. Make, is it? Do you are, are we good? You got any more? So all told, because we're an hour in. During his senior year of college, he <laughs> earned about one hundred ninety-seven dollars for his stories, um, and that's a little less than four thousand in today's dollars. So not bad. But the real value for him came from seeing his name on the table of contents in the fiction magazine. Like you said, his name was a huge deal to him. Um, he graduated from Columbia um, that same year, 1939, with his bachelor's in chemistry, bachelor's of science, not arts, dickheads. Um, <laughs> Which, I mean, is I know I was giving it shit earlier, but if you're going to graduate with chemistry, shouldn't you have a bachelor's in science? Yeah, I don't, I don't understand. What like, is the, the art of chemistry? I don't, the arts had like a, a really intellectual emphasis back then. Like, I feel like that is... 100% swapped. Yeah, now it point. is. <laughs> yeah. Now science is way cooler. Yeah, it's so much more intellectual. So yeah, so he made a decent chunk of money on the stories, but he couldn't live on that. So he he had to be realistic and make other plans. He applied to several medical schools all in New York City, um but didn't get into any of them, which was a huge disappointment to his father because yeah. you know there's that Jewish parent pressure like doctor, you got to be a doctor lawyer, or a lawyer, accountant. Yeah. Um, but it was kind of a relief to Asimov because he didn't know how he would pay for the tuition and he didn't really want to go anyway. Yeah. yeah. Um, so he applied to grad school um, and, and got into that, um, again, with a focus on chemistry. Um, and this is the first time like that ladies are in the same environment as him. So, yeah. I mean, like we said before, the candy shop was his entire life outside of school. So he had no chance to like socialize with anyone, let alone the ladies. The ladies. The ladies. Um, and then he went to an all boys high school. Girls weren't allowed in the colleges that he went to, which like, again, Thanks, fuck you, Columbia. James. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was in England, but whatever. It's still we still fault. hate you. Um, 
so yeah, so I mean, he he notes in there that he'd always found women attractive and tried to awkwardly flirt, um, but like he just he ha- did not have an opportunity to get out there. Was was Isaac Asimov and Milady guy? No, Milady probably. <laughs> he'd wear a fedora. He I talked about how he wore a fedora. He dude, Isaac Asimov was a Milady guy. Oh, not Mil-ladies. surprising it didn't work. <laughs> So, going into grad school, he has his, like, first romantic experience. He has a, a the hots for the uh, blonde who sits next to him in organic chemistry. Um, and she was, like, way smarter than him, which he found very sexy. Yeah. Uh, they were two of the uh, three students to get an A in the class. And one of the happiest days of his life until that point was in May of 1940 when he took her to the World's Fair, spent the whole day with her, and gave her several pecs. Which he said were like kisses, but not quite. Mm-hmm. Um, and but then she like graduated, took off for a job. He, I guess he went to visit her once, and then that was the end of it. Until yeah. like a quarter of a century later, she showed up at one of his lectures, which like I was expecting him to like name names, but he did not. Nope, nope he didn't. So mystery hot blonde, if you're still alive, <laughs> there's almost no way you're still you're you've been dead for thirty yeah, years. Yeah, this was almost a hundred yeah. years ago. There's no way she's still alive. But if you're still alive, ma'am, could you please contact us? Contact. We want to hear from you. We don't know why a 127-year-old is listening to our podcast, but we would love to have you on. The mystery. I mean, Just to tell us about that date. At the World's Fair. At the World's Fair in 1940, 1938. Yeah, 1940. Yeah, so he was 20 years old when he had his first date. And first kiss, apparently. And first awkward quick. Or awkward kiss. Awkward quick. Awkward quick. He did not have a quickie at the World's Fair. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, my lady. Around around this time, he um, sells the second story that he, like, wrote chronologically, uh, which was called Calliston Menace to Astonishing. Um, and by spring 1941, he had published 15 stories total and written another 10 that had not yet been sold. So he's like kind of on a roll. He is writing these things fast and getting them published just as fast. He's starting to get his... his he's hitting his stride. His stride, yeah. Um, and around the same time, he starts writing a series of stories about robots. One was Strange Playfellow, which he later used the title Robbie for. And I don't, you have not read iRobot, right? Nope. So this story ends up being in the very beginning. And I actually really love this story. So yeah. if you guys have a chance, like, if nothing else, just what's, read the short the story of Robbie. What is, what's the summary? The cli- it's kind of like Clara and the Sun in that it's... Um, you know, robots being used as basically like babysitters for small children in this case, not teenagers. Yeah. Um, and I, the the parents are like kind of worried that the little girl is getting way too codependent on her robot. Like she doesn't want to play with anyone else. And so they're like, you know what? We're just going to get rid of him. So they like boot him off. And the girl is just miserable, miserable until finally the the dad like is like, we're going to go take her to like see a factory that shows that robots like are just pieces and not a human and it backfires pretty spectacularly. Oh shit. So I, I really like that short story. It was my favorite part of iRobot. All right. So read that if you can. Um, and then let's see. 
He completes his Master of Arts degree in chemistry in 1941. Um, At the time, his test scores weren't high enough for him to go on to his PhD, I guess. So he had to take them a second time. And then on February 13th, 1942, he got permission to go on for his PhD. I'm being very specific with this date for a reason that we'll get back to. Okay. Um, so one of the, he <laughs> at ten twenty five ten twenty five a.m. He had to find a professor to take him on and supervise his work. So he found Charles Reginald Dawson, an excellent name. He that was a professor a who took on all Charles. the lame dogs other professors didn't want. Oh, he's a Hufflepuff. <laughs> Apparently, he was like just a super nice, gentle dude who never lost his temper. Um, and he believed in Asimov, which was huge for him. Like and a Hufflepuff. Like a hu- Hufflepuff. He was the Cedric Diggory of Columbia. Isaac Asimov was a Hufflepuff. Oh, Isaac Asimov is the Hufflepuff. Well, no, or I, Dawson is the Hufflepuff. Definitely Isaac Asimov would be a fucking Ravenclaw, if we're going to be honest. <laughs> Am I right? Yes. Yes. Yes, for sure. But somehow he ended up in Hufflepuff. <laughs> uh, by chance and racism. Jesus. So anyway, he loves this professor, and as a result, he ends up like dedicating several books to him. And I think at one point, Dawson is like, "You're the most famous person like I ever taught," which was like, he felt like that was his one way of repaying him for taking him on. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so the next day, February fourteenth, nineteen forty-two, he meets Gertrude Blugerman. Just the best name. I mean, <laughs> Looking, can we be honest? I really like my name, actually. <laughs> Who wouldn't want to be a Blugerman? So he meets Gertrude on a blind date on Valentine's Day because um, a friend from the Brooklyn Authors Club, which um, I guess was a club that he was part of where they would get together and read and critique manuscripts, uh, his friend suggested a double date. And upon hearing Asimov didn't have a girlfriend, was like, I'll get you one. So <laughs> they brought Gertrude, who was his like almost fiance's best friend and she was super hot and asimov was determined to score yeah. uh, she wasn't really into him he insisted on further dates until she finally gave in and then they got married on july 26th of the same year <sighs> yep that's exactly what i knew you were gonna yeah. do I don't need to go on and on and on with every author about how terrible they are at romance. Some of them aren't, but he is. And um, and even he talks about it. Even he talks about, like, there's got to be some sort of correlation between sci-fi authors, for him specifically, sci-fi authors, for us authors, and the fact that they cannot have good relationships. Like, they just can't. Um, and he's setting himself up for some failure, but on top of that, I just don't understand. Let's, let's get past the three month fucking bullshit. Let's know each other and then get, get hitched thing. Maybe that's just an old school thing, right? Maybe that's just something they did, especially like at wartime and like, you know, I think the war is going to have a big influence on this decision, but how the fuck do you go out with a guy not like him? Then go out with him again and again and again and again, and then somehow you're married to him. It's it's like something from a movie. It's like a, a comedy trope where, like, the girl goes on a date and then she's sitting there having a glass of wine with her friend and her friend's like, oh, did you like him? She's like, no, not really. I don't really see myself with him anymore. Cut to I do. And they're <laughs> getting married. Like, that's what that's like. Like, how the fuck did we get here? I don't understand it. How does a girl end up doing that? 
Is it pressure? Is it society? Back I'm guessing then? society pressures. Is it because she just did not want to have Blugerman I mean, as a last name anymore? Gertrude was like 24 at this point, so she was getting up there. She was not going to be uh, oh, marketable yeah. very soon. Damn, 24 years old, MILF alert. <laughs> Except she doesn't even have kids. She is not fulfilling her life's purpose. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, okay, so in the lead up to them getting married, a little thing called World War II is going on. Just a little thing. A little thing. Yeah. So... Uh, starts about the same time Asimov starts his graduate studies, and uh, he he describes it as taking his attention away from his schooling significantly because quote every Jew in the world was at risk if Hitler's Germany won the war. A lot of pressure, <laughs> a lot of pressure. He he desperately wanted Hitler defeated, um, and spent hours every day listening to the radio and reading newspapers, um, you know, desperately trying to find good news, which there was none. But he wasn't committed enough to. Uh, you know, actually join the war effort. He was, he doesn't like beat around the, the bush when it comes to like him not being um, a fighter. Yeah. You know, he doesn't he pretend is, to be he, no. brave. It's not even that. It's just he knows his place. Yeah. A- again, we talk about how he's conceited, but it's really just, he just knows. He knows where who he, he is and yeah. he, he just says it. Being displaced in school really taught him where he should be. Yeah. <laughs> I, I genuinely believe that. I think that's a good point. Um, then in December 1941, so two months before he qualifies for the PhD, um, Japan bombs Pearl Harbor and the U.S. enters the war. And at this point, he realizes that being drafted is more of a concern. He's like, okay, we're in it now. Like, I could actually be forced to go fight. Um, then in the spring of 1942, so right after he's kind of started his PhD program, Robert Heinlein? Heinlein? Um, Heinlein. Heinlein is... Okay, that's a writer he met through John Campbell's circle. Um, he tries to recruit him to work at the Naval Air Experimental Station along with him and also L. Sprague de Camp, another one of the writers from uh, Campbell's circle. Mm-hmm. Asimov didn't want to go anywhere because, like we've alluded to, he's kind of a homebody. He does not like going places. He's not quite the agoraphobe that um, Shirley Jackson was, but he's pretty <laughs> close. Yeah. He doesn't like leaving home. Yeah. Uh, he also didn't want to interrupt his PhD program because he was like, I might never finish it then. Um, but because the draft was kind of looming, he yeah. was like, you know what? I If I go work for the NAES, um, I might be useful for the war effort and convince them not to draft me for the army. Right. Like, I could be more useful as a scientist. Yeah. Um, also, he needed a job so he could marry Gertrude. He's a draft dodger. He's... <laughs> I would not describe it that way. He's literally dodging the draft. He's not leaving for Canada. He's getting around being drafted. In a more honorable way. No. <laughs> no. Not I that mean, I have uh, anything against draft dodging. He he <laughs> Politicals. With, <laughs> this episode Lewis got life, weirdly so political. political. This episode. Asimov just brings out the, the political side of me, apparently. <laughs> Um, yeah, I guess uh, semantic societies, he's, he's getting around being drafted. He's being smart about it. He's being smart about it. So he moves to Philadelphia to work at the NAES. Um, and he lived by himself for 10 weeks with just weekend visits to New York to see Gertrude. And I think this is probably some of the, the reason that they got married so soon. I mean, maybe they would have anyways, but like 
distance sh- makes the f- heart grow farther. Yeah, he was like, you know what? Except for in Gertrude's case where it's distance just irritates the shit out of me. And <laughs> so I guess we should get this over with. Gertrude, man. Such Gertrude a romantic. Does, let's, let's just spoil this now. Gertrude does not love Isaac. He knows that. Too, he or, knows it. I don't know if he knew that at the time, but looking back, he's like in, very in clear. In hindsight, at the very least. She was never that into him. Yeah. She was with him because he convinced her to be with him. She was getting old, and she just needed to change that last name. <laughs> 24 years old. She was getting old. She's she's just turning into an old maid. She found herself. Named Gertrude. She found herself knitting by the, by the fireside. <laughs> with seven cats. <laughs> <laughs> Gertrude's just a cat lady. Next t-shirt. I just think maybe we should give her a call. <laughs> so around the same time that he's going to Philadelphia, he gets yet another story um, published in Amazing Science Fiction. Um, this one's called Foundation. And the Foundation series, which I'm sure we'll talk about at length later. Yeah, in a um, later episode. It It's... This like lofty idea that he pitched to Campbell in in the early 40s as having like an open ended saga about the fall of the Galactic Empire, the Dark Ages, and then the new empire that like is reborn. Yeah. So it's like an epic idea. Um, and this series would later turn out to be his most successful. Sure. Um, so he moves Gertrude or he he marries Gertrude, moves her to Philadelphia with him. Uh, Gertrude hates it there and spends a lot of time back in New York with her family. Yeah. Because she doesn't love him anyway. She loves her mom. She loves her mom. She's. Are we going to get into that now or are we going to get into that next episode? We can get into that next episode. Yeah. She. It's kind of weird. She's weird. That family's weird. <laughs> Very codependent. At least in in Isaac's mind. And in mine after. If everything he from said is true. what he said. Yeah. From yeah. his point of view, it's weird. So back in Philadelphia, uh, one of the projects that he worked on at the um, NAES were dye markers, which I guess pilots that were stranded in the ocean used to color the water around them so search planes could find them. It's dope. Yeah. They still use it today. And he liked it because in his mind, he was clearly contributing to the war effort. Yeah. And it kind of like made him feel better about not about actually being a, going a out. Draft about, about being a draft dodger. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, Despite that, though, like this was not a dream job for him. He didn't get along with his superiors, which is a theme throughout his life and interactions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was also a super demanding job time wise. And he didn't write it all during his first year. He he picked it up again later on and got some stories published. Um, and then on September 2nd, 1945, the war ended. Yay. On September 7th, he gets drafted. Boo. <laughs> <laughs> and he was six weeks shy of his 26th birthday. 26th birthday which was like the age cutoff for getting drafted so he felt a lot of self-pity uh he goes into the army in november again doesn't get along with the other soldiers or superiors nope um but he's described Would it as you? like if you got drafted right at the end after the war ended no He's very salty about yeah, everything. Yeah, I would be too. And he like bitches about it all the time and people are like bro other I people have too. real problems. I've got real problems. <laughs> I'm getting drafted into a war that doesn't exist. <laughs> so um, a, he ends up getting out of it because of a clerical error, basically. So, like, they send a letter to Gertrude saying that her, like, military spouse benefits are getting cut off. And yeah. she's like, why? And Asimov brings it to his superior. And they're like, oh, we're just going to send you back to, like, base, like, while we figure this out. Yeah. He was um in Honolulu at the time. A day after he leaves, a different ship 
leaves for um, this like nuclear weapons testing facility or like island that yep. the U.S. military is using. Um, so on the the one hand, he never gets to see nuclear bombs go off, but on the other hand, he says he didn't get leukemia at a young age. Yeah. So you know he, he dodged a bomb there. He did dodge a bomb. He's a draft dodging bomb dodging. <laughs> Son of a gun. And then when he's back at his, like, original camp, he pulls the strings for a research discharge and gets released in July 1946 after serving less than half of the two years he was supposed to. So, I mean, we're running kind of long. Yeah, we need to wrap this episode up. Yeah, I don't know. And there's so much, there's so much much more to talk about. This is like, this is like maybe... 25% 25% of his memoir. It, I think I literally was at 25% of his memoir when it's I read that. insane how this. comprehensive this memoir is and how much life he lived. Again, I was expecting a dude who wrote books and died. <laughs> wrote books and died. That's what your uh, tombstone can say. <laughs> wrote books and died. I hope so. I hope I can say that. Um, <laughs> I know I'm going to write books. I'm just hoping to die. Um <laughs> Oh my god! Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's just it's just crazy how much life this guy lived, and we're I, I, like usual, we're just skimming the top, right? Like there's so much in depth, there's so many ideas that he has coming out of this stuff, so many so many thoughts that he has on everything, and um, the foundation series we just touched on. There's so much more to talk about, which we will talk about in the next episode because it is it's the foundation. The foundation of his career, the foundation of his career. Um, and yeah, and so we'll probably talk about that. Uh, I mean, we'll definitely talk about that as other works, his marriages. Spoiler alert! You I mean know. it's not going to work out with Gertrude, the crazy cat lady who loves her mom and not her husband? <laughs> and he married after three months. Yeah, no, sorry, not going to work. Um, and uh, and his kids, and like, and and his relationship with his kids, which is really interesting. He has a, an interesting relationship with his son and daughter. I think that's also a theme for our authors. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that it's the same as a lot of them. I mean, like Hemingway was a douchebag um, that his kids had a hard time with. Herbert wasn't Herbert a good dad. Herbert was a douchebag that his kids had a hard time with. Uh, Tolkien was a great guy, so we don't talk about his family life. Yeah, Tolkien was awesome. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Devani. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so... Uh, if you if you're feeling like uh, like there's more to know about him, it's because you're right. There's 75 percent more to know <laughs> about him. So Nailed stay it. tuned for next week. Well, actually, or actually stay tuned for next week when we will release our sci fi flash fiction episode. Thank you all for sending in your stories. They're super good. Uh, yeah. Tyler, I think you will be impressed. I'm excited. I don't know. I, I have not listened to, read, seen any stories. Yeah, I, I have, told him to not check the Gmail. Yeah, I, I'm actively, I'll see it pop up on my phone and be like, nope. Don't look. Nope. So, uh, yeah, I'm I'm trying to trying to be <laughs> honest about that. But uh, if you do want to contact us, Tyler, how can they send us stuff like flash fiction for future episodes or, or just comments? You can email us at lewisandlovecraft at gmail.com. And this is important because we want to hear from you guys. Even if you just want to say hi, tell us what you think of our show. We absolutely want to hear from you. It it really helps us. Uh, We've been doing this for almost two years now. Wow. Almost two years. We we started recording June of two years ago. So um, 
and and I and we're starting to see more people, you know, conversating with us, and that's great. But I I really want to hear from you guys, just your thoughts and opinions on stuff, and and feel free to write in stories. You know, again, book reviews that you've read, we will read them on our show, or flash fiction that you you know, just little stories that you want to try and make us laugh or cry or scream out in rage, whatever it is. It's easy to make Tyler scream out in rage and cry. Um, you can you can also talk to us. On our Facebook page, Lewis and Lovecraft, uh, facebook.com backslash Lewis and Lovecraft, we also have a private group where we share memes every once in a while. Um, so you can find that and try and join that. Um, you can also go to our Instagram page, at Lewis and Lovecraft on Instagram. We post uh, pictures every once in a while, sometimes of us, sometimes of our authors, things like that. Um, you know. We we try to do social media stuff, and you can go to our website, lewisandlovecraft.com. And as always, a thank you to Jake Basson for our awesome intro music. You can find him at soundcloud.com slash Basson. Make sure you subscribe to our show so that you don't miss anything new, because we do this show, we do our deep dives, and then we also do correspondence episodes, which are just so much fun to do because we get to talk to other people and make them pretend to be our friends. <laughs> That's Tyler's favorite pastime. Yeah. Um, rate and review us on whatever platform you can, uh, especially Apple Podcasts. That's a, a big one. And also Podchaser. Podchaser. Make sure you check out our Podchaser um, and review us there. If you listen to us on Spotify, then you're not going to be able to review us on Spotify. So go to Podchaser because it's a great place where people can can check out a lot of different shows. It's like the IMDb of podcasts. And also Patreon. We need more patrons. And by need, I mean desperately need. I'm, I'm, we don't need them. But we want them. <laughs> we if, like the if, support. If you like our show and you want to support us, you know, it's it's a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars. Um, there's more, but you don't have to do those. And uh, we appreciate it. And it'll help us feel supported and make us want to do more and more and more. And the other way to make us feel supported is to tell your friends. It's the best way, man. I mean, do you tell, Hannah, do you tell people about our show? I do. Yeah. I, like, probably every week I do at least three people. I think I try to hit a quota <laughs> of three people. Well, not to uh, one-up you, but I now tell a friend every single time I publish something at work because oh, really? it's in the footnotes of my, like, author bio at the nice. end of every story. Well so. done. I am, the world is my friend, and I am telling them. Nice. Good job. And remember, listeners, that uh, if you want to uh, help us, the best way to do that is to tell friends to get them to listen to our show. And uh, with that... As I'm out. Oh, damn. Well done. <laughs> <laughs>